Well, good morning. Let's see. Two weeks ago we had Easter, the celebration of our Lord's death and resurrection. What a wonderful weekend that was. Many of you participated in that music and song and drama. Last week we had uh, the senior hires perform a, a drama and a musical, The Ride. And I'm going to promise you this morning that I'm not going to sing or do drama <laughs> or dance. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, winding down one night, and I just happened to be doing a little channel surfing on the television, and I ran across the Charlie Rose show. Uh, Charlie was interviewing Sister Helen Prejean, who authored the book Dead Man Walking. Uh, as many of you are aware, that the, the movie has been uh, become very popular right now on the big screen. As the interview went on, I was intrigued by the dialogue because Sister Helen uh, had made quite a shift from her early days of, of having a relationship with God to where she's at now. Her story is not unlike many of ours. Uh, she came to understand that she needed a personal relationship with God through her Savior, Jesus Christ, that through the indwelling of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He gives us an inner peace that she wanted to love and demonstrate kindness to those that were afflicted to begin loving her neighbor. So I went out last week and I bought the book, began reading. And what I discovered is that early, well, early 80s, 1981, she had attended some conferences where she heard messages that challenged her heart to grow deeper in love with Jesus Christ. And then instead of looking at the neighbor as somebody else's responsibility she moved to St. Thomas, the New Orleans housing project of about 1,500 black people that were destitute and poor, drug-infested community, gunshots in the middle of the night. And she went there with the attitude of seeing them not as somebody else's neighbor, but she was going to make herself their neighbor. She demonstrated what one person said, I am going to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. This morning, we come to a wonderful parable, one that you are, many of you are familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in this story, our Lord helps us understand how it is that we better love God with our heart, our soul, our strength, and our minds as we begin to love our neighbor as ourselves. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10 as we finish up in verses 25 through 42. What I want to do this morning is look at the first five verses and make a few comments. As I mentioned, this is a very precious parable of our Savior. If Luke had not recorded it in the New Testament, we would uh, never have learned of it because you see... Luke is the only one of the New Testament authors that records and reports this story for us. Let's begin in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's pause here for a moment. I just want to make one comment that we see that, that Luke sets the stage for us that this scholar, this religious expert in the law, whom I will refer to at times as a lawyer. Lawyers, don't worry, I'm not going to have any lawyer jokes this morning. But uh, we're going to refer to him as an expert in the law. And he comes to Jesus to test him, the Scriptures say. The word test here means to put to the test. 
it was used often and usually with a, a, a negative connotation. Uh, usually it, it expressed unfavorable meaning. In other words, this expert comes to Jesus and he did not ask this question exclusively as a result of some deep spiritual yearning. Okay? Well, what I love about our Lord is that oftentimes when he's asked those pressing questions, what does he do? He turns the tables on us and he asks us a question in return. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? In other words, how do you personally interpret the Scriptures? How do you understand it? And you know, he does the same thing today as we read Scripture. Dennis, what do you think of this passage? How do you understand it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Lord, I don't know. Some days I don't understand it very well. Listen to the man's answer. He, he said in verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the strict Orthodox Jew of that day would wear on his wrist a leather bag or a leather box or pouch. It was called a phylactery. In those phylacteries were scriptural passages. Some think that it could have contained Exodus 13. We're pretty sure that it included the passages that he either quotes or reads. We don't know if he opened up this little phylactery box and read Deuteronomy 6, but that's where the first half of that commandment comes. From Deuteronomy 6.5. The second half comes from Leviticus 19, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. You have answered rightly. What you have said is proper. Now go, do this, and you will live. You will somehow experience eternal life by loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. But now... Watch carefully in verse 29 because this is where the real test comes. But he, that is the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus another question. Just who is my neighbor? Now the word here for justify that Luke uses can also be translated to vindicate. To make right. Uh, the, the man wanted to be exonerated. He wanted to show that he was free from any blame, any guilt, from not having loved who his neighbor was. He was looking for an easy out. He wanted to be declared righteous. He wanted to know that if he was loving his neighbor as he was supposed to, then he actually was contributing to part of his salvation. See it in the words? He wanted to justify himself. He thought that there was something he could do that could mean that he understood and knew exactly what Jesus was referring to in the law. So he asked this question, who is my neighbor? Now we need to understand that the Jew of that day would have heard what was called the halakha. It's a Hebrew word which means one's walk, one's behavior. The halakha was the verbal interpretation of the Mosaic Law, which every young Jew, every old Jew, would have listened to as a young youth growing up. This verbal interpretation of the Mosaic Law described for all of the Jews how they were supposed to live. Their religious, social, political, and civil laws. The Halakha entered into every detail of private, family, uh, and public life. 
And unfortunately, this verbal interpretation of the Mosaic Law took precedence over the Scriptures. They, they moved the, the, the Pentateuch to, to the background and they elevated this Halakha to the foreground. Jesus condemns this verbal interpretation in Mark 7, 6. You don't need to turn to it. Let me just read it. Jesus quotes Isaiah 29. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules from men. The halakha described an Israelite's neighbor as a fellow Jew. This verbal interpretation said that your fellow neighbor was somebody that grew up in your nation, in your community, that is Jewish in nationality only. It excluded the Gentile. It excluded the Greek and the Samaritan. So you see, this expert in the law was testing Jesus to see if he would agree with the verbal interpretation. We don't want to miss that because it's very important to the parable of the Good Samaritan. See, the only way he or anyone can justify himself is to limit the extent of the law's demands. And by doing so, then you limit your responsibilities. Said another way, I can pick and choose who I want to be my neighbor based on how I feel about that person, his color, what he has done or hasn't done for me. And so I only extend any kind of love and generosity and mercy to those that I choose to do so. As I read through this passage this past week, I thought, I'm not like this lawyer. And then the Spirit of God reminded me that I am just like this expert in the law when it comes to loving my neighbor. Because there are times in my life, and I'm sure in your lives, when you choose to love somebody and when you choose not to. And the reason we choose not to is often because we have many good reasons, don't we? Or at least they seem uh, valid at the time. And that's why our Lord Jesus tells us this wonderful parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's read on now in verse 30 through 37. In reply to the question, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, oh, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, that is two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. He said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The expert in the law replied, the one, I'm sorry, let me back up. Verse 36 says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now notice this, it's real easy to miss this. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one... And he can't even let the word Samaritan roll off of his tongue. We'll come back to that in a little bit. The one who had mercy on him. So Jesus told him, go and do likewise. 
Now this morning I want to look at three elements of the story. I want to look at the scene, what took place. I want to look at the characters, who they were, what they were all about. And I want to look at the message, which, as you can tell from these words of our Lord, is pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Well, let's first look at the scene. Jesus tells us that this traveler walks away from the city of Jerusalem and he's on this road to Jericho. Now, the road to Jericho was notoriously a very dangerous road. Jerusalem set at some 2,300 feet elevation. Jericho, which was near the, the Dead Sea, was 1,300 feet below sea level. The road uh, is about 20 miles uh, in distance between Jerusalem and Jericho. And so what you see is uh, this traveler is descending some 3,600 feet down a winding, crooked, narrow uh, road with overhangs and cliffs with uh, sharp switchbacks. And it became a, a happy hunting ground for villains and thieves and robbers. Several years ago, uh, we went, my wife and I and boys went up to help a friend in the fellowship here brand some cattle. His ranch was in what I called Marlboro country. I mean, you had to take a road. Well, matter of fact, some of the cowboys that came to help brand, they rolled their horses and I thought, what's the big deal? Just, you know, take your four-wheel drive truck and drive up there. Well, I found out what the big deal was. It had switchbacks and it had overhangs and boulders on the road. And so my wife, we got about halfway up and she said, honey, I, I'm, I need to get out and walk. This is, my heart is in my throat. So I let her get out and walk. I drove on. <laughs> well, no, it was out of love for her, folks. <laughs> what I didn't tell her was there were rattlesnakes on the road. And it was, it was infested with snakes, I'll tell you. But we're looking at the kind of road here, the Jerusalem road to Jericho that was dangerous. And uh, uh, matter of fact, in the 5th century, Jerome tells us that they named the road the Bloody Way or the Red Road because of all the, the villainy. Is that a word? We'll make it a word today. And uh, even as late as the 1930s, uh, we are told that a, a traveler by the name of H.V. Morton was warned to uh, get off the road before dark because apparently there was a certain robber that was adept at, at holding up uh, cars. And, and he would get away with the loot before the, the local police could come along and uh, capture this villain because he would run up into the hills, into the high country and escape them. So our Lord is telling us a, about the kind of thing that was ha happening in his day that, that people could identify with this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, secondly, I want to look at the characters. There's four characters in the story. The first one is the traveler. We're told that he is beaten, he is robbed, he is stripped of his clothes, and he is left half dead. Uh, he's in the buff, he's in the raw, he's naked on the side of the road, and he looks like he's dead. We're not told much else. Jesus, matter of fact, doesn't tell us whether he's a Greek, a Gentile, a Samaritan, or a Jew, but what do you guess he was? A Jew. I think we can assume safely that uh, Jesus is talking about uh, an Israelite here. Why? Well, because the expert in the law considered who to be his friend according to the halakha. A Jew. So what our, our Lord does is he puts the Jew in the ditch. He does this role reversal because it drives the story home by shattering 
the, the, the hearer, this expert in the law, loose from any preconceptions he has about who his neighbor is supposed to be. Now, based on what we know about the, the red or bloody road, it appears that this man was one of two things, this traveler. He was either very naive to the dangers, or he was very young, reckless, and foolhardy. You see, people in that day would seldom travel the road or journey that road alone. They would get into a caravan or a convoy, especially if they were carrying valuable goods. A better choice uh, might have been to have had some armed guards. As a matter of fact, we're told that even as late as the 19th century that there was some sheiks that took money to, to travel with people to protect them. Well, why do I, I, I mention this? Well, because often I think when we're trying to describe who our neighbor is, it's easy to look at somebody else and point the finger and say, you know, they got themselves into that predicament. Let them get themselves out. Now, we don't know if the priest or the Levite thought that way, but I surely know that I think that way all the time. I see young people get in trouble, especially when I worked in youth ministry. And I say, well, he got them, got himself into that uh, predicament. She got pregnant. Uh, she's just going to have to learn the tough way. But see, God calls us to something different, something better, something greater. Instead of passing judgment on people, moving it alongside of them, ministering to their afflictions, as Sister Helen said. I was riding yesterday with a, with a fellow in the evening service, and we were driving back. Uh, we'd been out motorcycle riding. And driving back, we talked about this principle, and he mentioned to me that, by the way, this fellow has his own business, and he only has one employee. And this employee got arrested a, a, a few months back and, and now is in the midst of doing 90 days, 90 days uh, jail sentence. He's going to be uh, paroled here on probation in about 15 to 30 days. And I, I thought, I said to this friend of mine, I said, well, are you going to have him back or are you just going to you know, kind of cut him loose and, and get somebody that's more dependent on He said, you know, Dennis, th- this fellow is a good, good hard worker. He's just made a few bad choices in life. He's made a few mistakes. He says, you know, my wife and I have committed ourselves to bringing him back into employment to love him. He doesn't know Jesus. He needs to know the Lord. And we're committed to this man in spite of his mistakes. And that's the way I want to be. Well, the next group of men are the priests and the Levites. I want to clump them together. The, the word priest comes from the root word meaning to be holy or divine. Uh, these were, were uh, to be godly servants, to be godly men that served in the temple. And you will recall that the priest's uh, primary responsibility was to offer sacrifices for people. The Levites, you will, will recall from the wilderness days when, when God commanded Moses to select men out of the tribe of Levi for the specific reason of coming alongside of the priests and helping them with all that they needed to do in the tabernacle and then later when the temple was built. So these men were set aside to be ministers, pastors, servants, like each one of us here, if you know Jesus. But neither of these men stopped to care for this half-dead traveler. Well, why? Well, there may be a couple of explanations. Possibly uh, they were remembering Numbers 19. 1911, where the Scriptures teach that if anyone touches a dead man, they would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Sorry, I lost my place. Uh, I saw a dear friend here that I hadn't seen in a long time. 
That's okay, Katie. Welcome. It's good to see you. Ha. Huh. If I embarrass you, I'll buy you a Coke afterwards. <laughs> Where was I? Okay. <laughs> we talking about the priest still? Yeah, I think we were. <laughs> Lord, this is going to be tough, eh? Yeah. Okay. So it's possible that these men thought that if they went and, and, and what would you have to do? You see a man in the pit on the side of the road, you've got to go up and touch him to find out if he's alive or not. They were concerned that if they did that, they may risk the, the, the joy, the responsibility of serving in the temple, and so they chose not to do it. He's, sometimes we're like that. We put ceremony above charity, don't we? We put liturgy, we put you know, programs and activities, religious activities ahead of people. But Jesus reminds us in this parable that no matter what the excuse was for the priests and the Levites, that they were without excuse because they did not lend a hand. Pastors, ministers, servants who did not risk losing whatever. Then lastly, there was a Samaritan. Just a couple of thoughts here. Uh, first, Jesus may have meant that this man was racially a Samaritan. Uh, you all remember the history of the Samaritans. Um, the Assyrians in 721 B.C. came in, ransacked, ransacked the city of Samaria, and then they carted off tw- almost 28,000 Jews back to Assyria. Uh, some of the Assyrians uh, moved in and camped that area. They intermingled with the Jews. They uh, intermarried with the Jews and basically defiled themselves. And the Orthodox Jews looked at these Sumerians as half-breeds, as second-class citizens. Uh, Another idea is that Jesus may have used the term Samaritan not necessarily as a racial description, but more as one of a description of one's character. You see, there were times in those days that The word Samaritan was used to describe a man or a woman who was a heretic. A Samaritan was a a person that was considered to be a breaker of the ceremonial law. Remember, they worshipped God on Mount Gerizim where the Jews worshipped on Mount Jerusalem, or in in Jerusalem. Even Jesus himself in John 8, 48 was called a Samaritan by the Jews. Well, perhaps this man was a Samaritan in the sense of being a man uh, whom all uh, orthodox and good people despised. But no matter which position you take, two things are noteworthy. First of all, his credit, his character, was beyond reproach. Clearly, this man had traveled this bloody road, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and many times he had frequented the inn because the innkeeper was prepared to trust him. The innkeeper was prepared to honor his money and his word. He may have been theologically unsound, uh, but, he, but he was an honest man, wasn't he? Second of all, and, and listen carefully to this, he was not only willing, but he was prepared to minister, to love, and show mercy to his neighbor. Maybe he was thought to be a heretic by the Jews, but uh, his charity... His love towards God was abundant in his heart because of the way he ministered to this enemy, this Jew. One commentator put it this way. He says, It is no new experience to find the Orthodox 
more interested in dogmas, that is, rules, regulations, than in help, and to find the man the Orthodox despise to be the man who loves his fellow man. In the end, we will all be judged not by the creed which we hold, but by the way we live our life. And this Samaritan, whether he was a Samaritan by race or it was a derogatory term, he exudes this love of God in such a way that he ministers to this fellow Jew. That that leads us to the final element of the story, and that is the message. As I mentioned earlier, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's pretty simple. Jesus is describing to this expert in the law how one can be saved, how one can inherit eternal life. And he says you need to love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then out of that love will flow a heart attitude for loving your neighbor. It's kind of a barometer. It's a way to read kind of just where your love is in relationship to God. And the significance of these, this fourfold practice, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, is that it is the, it's, it's an attitude of total devotion. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. For the word heart, he uses the word passion. Uh, now, typically, there was hostility between Jew and Samaritan, right? But, but note what verse 33 says. The Samaritan took pity on him. The words imply a deep feeling of sympathy. So he was moved with passion. The word soul, uh, you know, that's a kind of a confusing word in our, our culture today. But, but the, the word soul means our inner man, our inner woman, our inner being. God created us in His, what? Image. And so how does our soul connect with God's image? Well, Eugene Peterson translates this word soul here. In, as prayer. We connect with God's image through our soul through prayer. So, first we're, we're stirred with passion. And then our soul cries out to God in prayer so we have a connection there. And then it leads to the last two words, strength and mind. And Peterson translates those words, muscle and intelligence. This sympathy moved the Samaritan man towards love and mercy and gentleness and kindness. There are nine things that I want to share with you real quickly. We won't spend time talking about them, but these nine things tell us just how tangible and costly were the ways he ministered to this Jew in the ditch, this naked, this half-dead person. First of all, he saw the wounded man on the side of the road and something was allowed to happen in his heart. Secondly, he felt compassion. He identified with where this man was and he moved on in a moment of love and a heart of love. Thirdly, he came toward him. He took his own life in his hands because he didn't know if there were other robbers hiding nearby using this as a trap. Fourthly, he bandaged up the man's wounds. He poured his own oil and wine over this man. Fifthly, he put him on his own donkey, his own beast, and then he walked alongside, leading the way to a place of refuge. Sixth, he brought him to the Red Lion Riverside Inn, the best in town. And you know, by doing that, he had to curtail all of his own plans. He had to stop the journey he was on and take care of this this man. And seventh, he took personal care of him. 
He spent the night there in the end to make sure that he would make it through the night, that he would live. Eight, he gave the innkeeper two days' wages to care for this man and told him that if it cost more, he would repay him. And finally, he told the innkeeper he would return. He would come back. He would check in on this Jew. And if there was more costs involved, he would make restitution. If that's not total devotion, I don't know what is. Loving God with one's heart, one's soul, one's strength, one mind, muscle, fiber, bones, fingers, intelligence, and passion. Jesus reminds us that when God moves us to this loving kind of action, wonderful things happen. And something good is happening in this community and across the state of Idaho. You will recall the news that broke December 13, 1995, when a healthy migrant worker fell prey to some farm machinery. He lost both arms lost one of his legs below the kneecap. And in that one moment, uh, Javier uh, Telez Juarez's life was changed. He no longer could reach out and hug his seven-month-old daughter. He no longer could provide for his wife. Simple things like brushing his teeth Tying his shoes that we take for granted daily came to an end. But something good is happening, folks, in the state of Idaho and in Spokane, Washington, and in Portland, Oregon. Oregon. Twenty churches have gotten together. They call it the Coalition of Faith. And what they've done is they've set aside, they're they're recruiting churches to raise some $200,000 to put into a trust fund to help cover expenses, but also to help this man for the the remaining years of his life have some financial support. You didn't know it, but you have already contributed to that coalition of faith fund. You see, the elders just recently decided to take $4,000 of your money from the faith fund and send it off to Javier. Matter of fact... Uh, at the end of the service, we are going to have the ushers at the back. And there's no, there's not a better day when we have a, a passage like this to continue giving to the fellowship fund. Because we need to replenish what was given to Javier because we keep helping each other in this body. Keep helping people in the community. Folks that don't even go to our, our church. Something good is happening as we love God and as we love our neighbors. But you say, Dennis, well, that's fine. I see how loving our neighbors works. But but this idea of loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind seems to be rather abstract. Uh, Well, that's why we have the next story. See, Luke sets us right alongside the, the Good Samaritan story, the story of Martha and Mary. And let's read that in closing. Verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. 
She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to, to help me. And Jesus answers and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This story is one of the, another one of those gems, precious jewels that only Luke records for us in the Gospels. According to John chapter 10, we are, are told that Jesus journeyed often in the final six months of His life before His crucifixion to uh, Jerusalem. And on this occasion, uh, he, he went to Bethany, to the home uh, of Martha and Mary. Bethany was located very near Jerusalem. And I believe that this story is set aside, the story of the Good Samaritan, not by accident, but to help us better understand how to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me just make two brief comments. First of all, Martha, bless her heart, she was desirous of being a good hostess, wasn't she? She was anxiously preparing a great feast for the Lord Jesus. I mean, I think, you know, if Jesus was coming to dinner at my house tonight, I would sure hope that Judy and I would, would put on the hog, as some folks say. We would be delighted to have him sit at our dining table. Uh, but Luke tells us that she was distracted by all the preparation and the work. Jesus uses two words to describe her activity. Uh, that she was worried and she was upset. Matter of fact, she even came to Jesus and requested that Mary get up off her duff and help her out. you got to love Martha. I believe Martha certainly meant well. But unfortunately, her great zeal led her away from what Jesus calls the more important thing. The thing that Mary had chosen to do, which was better. Now, what was this thing that Mary chose, which, Mary, uh, which Martha didn't? Well, don't you just love Jesus? He doesn't even tell us. Now, some commentators think that, well, uh, Mary was entering into the contemplative life. She was meditating, and that's most important. Others say that uh, Mary was placing worship over servanthood, so we shouldn't get too carried away with serving others, but we should be more involved with worship. Some even say that uh, Mary was seeking the kingdom of God first, and Martha wasn't. All these are good ideas and good practices, but I don't think this is what Jesus had in mind. What we need to do is we need to look at the whole context of this chapter. And the preceding parable establishes for us the importance of priorities in the Christian life. Namely, how to love God and how to love your neighbor. You've got to keep that sequence in order. See, Martha must now learn to give the Lord and His Word, His teaching, priority over her loving service. There are more important human needs. There are lots of important needs out there, aren't there? Uh, the story of Javier, the story of the traveler who is stripped and beaten and left half dead, that, that's an important need. And even the need of feed, feeding Jesus in Martha's home is very great. But Jesus reminds us that what is most needed goes even further beyond these 
great human needs. The way we love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind is by sitting at Jesus' feet and listening and soaking in His words of everlasting life that roll off of His tongue. It is by doing this first that we are empowered and enabled to love our neighbor. You see, the priest and the Levite were busy with religious activity and they failed to make sitting at Jesus' feet a priority. But apparently the Samaritan, even in all of his possible theological theological confusion, somehow understood what it meant to love God with all of his heart, his soul, his strength, and mind. And that's the challenge this morning, folks, is we, we need to first sit at Jesus' feet. If we are not willing to do that, we will never know who our neighbor is, nor will we know what kind of neighbor we are. You see, Sister Helen Prejean discovered what it meant to love God in a deeper way, and it led her to a housing project, and it led her to be a spiritual advisor to death row inmates. Is that what God is calling us to today? I don't know. Uh, His call for you may be different than His call for Sister Helen. Or for me. So somebody, a wise old sage once said, your neighbor is the next person you meet with a need. Folks, you're sitting next to your neighbors. You don't know what's written on their hearts or minds this morning, but there's some great needs in this body. Oftentimes it's easier to love the person across the street who you don't know very well than the brother or sister that's sitting right in this fellowship that's broken, that's disappointed you. That's our neighbor. And that's the challenge we have this morning. Do you love God? Do you want to love God with all your heart? With your passion? with your muscle, your fiber, your bones, your fingers, your hands, your feet. Sit at His feet. And I guarantee He will show you who your neighbor is and what kind of neighbor you need to be. Let's pray. Father, we are a family, and I thank You for that. If it was not for that, uh, I wouldn't attend here, Lord. I, You love us so much. You... As Peter said, uh, where else can we go, Lord? Uh, You are the one who holds the, the words of eternal life. I thank you, God, that your passion, your heart for me and each one of these people in this room takes us to a deeper level of understanding uh, this challenge this morning. God, may we love you more. May we demonstrate that love to our brothers and sisters here in this room the world out there that is dying of a need to know you. In the name of Jesus, we ask and request this. Amen.